Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven have long, long been misinterpreted. Yes, God has all along made his plan to redeem sinners very clear. But even with that, human nature inevitably leans toward an empty and man-centered self-righteousness. Even in the church, Christ isn't always viewed as our salvation. Our salvation in whose righteousness, blood, and resurrection we must rest by faith. Many times he is wrongly portrayed as a guide to live a better life now in a heaven-ish kingdom that is really more suited to earthly standards. And sadly, there seems to be no shortage of professing Christians who are willing to believe the latter. Now that wrong perspective of Christ was nowhere more evident than in Jesus' day among his own people, the Jews. Although God's revelation pointed them squarely to Christ as the way into a heavenly kingdom that reached down and redeemed sinners of every ethnicity, the very same scriptures were unbelievably misunderstood unbelievably applied to an earthly kingdom in which a Messiah would come and he would primarily bless the Jews and then curse the Gentiles. But the Christ that is promised in Scripture was foreign to the Jews. At least in large part. He wasn't just one who would appear and lead everyone to be adherents to Judaism as the scribes and the Pharisees and the other leaders taught. He was actually the true Christ, was actually the true Israel, who loved God with all his being and who loved neighbor as himself. And he called sinners to repent and to trust in him. You may have failed to keep the law of God, the Christ comes in essence saying, but trust in me, I have accomplished what you failed to do. And so Jesus really is the true Israel, we might say. He is the faithful son, he is the the true servant of God as Mark's gospel presents him. And the Old Testament gives us many imperfect examples of Jewish people who foreshadowed Christ, King David, as we'll note this morning, being one of them. But they were imperfect. Only Jesus proved to have a heavenly royalty a heavenly righteousness, and only Jesus proved to be the one who can bring us into the heavenly reward that God promises. And this is what Jesus himself makes clear in these verses before us today in Mark chapter 12. Although they were diligent to try, neither the Sadducees nor the Pharisees were able to entrap Jesus. You'll remember 
All throughout his earthly ministry, they endeavored to do that, catch him in his words. And the longer it went on, the more they threw up Scripture, and they would at first just deal with concepts like the Sabbath, but now they are dealing with Scripture and passages of Scripture or asking Jesus what his interpretation of the law would be, what is the summary, what's the basis of your position there. And these things we've seen as we've studied through together in chapter 12, the Sadducees in particular making one last effort to entrap Christ on the issue of resurrection, and then the scribes somewhat a little uh, somewhat more timidly, I guess I should say, a little, with a little more apparent humility at least, come and ask Jesus, what's the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus says, well, there's the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your being, in essence, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And he brings the, the law around and summarizes that. These are the greatest. There's no other commandment greater than these, said our Lord. Jesus was a threat everywhere they turned. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, when he cleansed the temple, when he declared the nation spiritually fruitless with the lesson of the fig tree, when he identified its leaders as rebels against the kingdom of God in his parable of the vineyard and the tenants, these same leaders doubled down in their efforts to discredit him, and that's what we've seen in this chapter. But Jesus pressed back with unmistakable evidence that he was indeed the Christ whose kingdom was heavenly. And we find that they finally give up publicly debating Jesus and now the Lord takes the opportunity to identify himself as the heavenly king, one with the heavenly royalty. Yes, in the line of David, but greater than David, far greater. David foreshadowed, David foresaw everything that Christ would be and what his kingdom would entail. Much greater, much broader than what the scribes had in view. And so to make this point, Jesus contrasts what the scribes taught about the Christ with what David himself said in Psalm 110, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The scribes saw the Christ as a son of David, or the son of David, the greater of the sons of David, David but not as Scripture presented him. He was like David. He was, he was like one of the kings who followed David. But in their mind, he wasn't who Christ actually was. They appealed to Scripture when they publicly attacked Jesus, and so Jesus now, in turn, exposed their ignorance, and he exposes their unbelief. In fact, he says in verse 24, you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. And then in verse 34, he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God to the scribe, but you're not in it. 
You might know the Scripture in that you know how to read it, you understand the content as it were, but you do not embrace it by faith. You do not see that all of this speaks of me. And so now Jesus asks a question from Scripture which their hardened hearts can't answer. Now Jesus knew the scribes viewed the Christ as just the son of David, a descendant. Someone who would appear, someone who would solidify what David began, what the subsequent kings after David had not yet been able to accomplish. And if you were to read on in Psalm 89, which I read earlier, you would note that the Israelites were sometimes very depressed because what God promised to David had not yet become a reality. And so they mourned often at what their failure had brought. It was not what God promised David. There was the chastening that God had promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 for those who did not obey the Lord, but they did not see the kingdom and one seated on the throne forever, as God also said there. So Jesus now cites the very words of David himself who looked with faith to that promise of God. We see in verse 35 that as he taught in the temple, he says to the scribes who were no doubt standing on the, the edge of the crowd, the great throng of people that heard him gladly, he says to them, how can the or he says to the people, how can the scribes who are listening to this, how can they say the Christ is the son of David? And David himself says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself now, you know, accrediting David's writing as the word of God. He says, how can, G how can David say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. How is that possible if he is just a man? How is it possible that David would say to a descendant of his, in a culture where all the descendants were to look back at their ancestors with great respect and their ancestors were considered greater than they were, how could David say of this Lord whom God is addressing himself. How could David call him that? How could he say he is my Lord? Normally it would be the other way around. David would be the Lord or the great ancestor of this one that God promised. If we were looking at that from a purely human perspective... The Lord God said to David's Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus specifically points out David's subordinate view of himself to Christ. And in case you're wondering, that should be our perspective of Jesus as well. 
Sadly, in a lot of churches, it seems that Jesus is not elevated and exalted and worshipped. He's considered your equal. And I've heard many preachers preach sermons and they do not exalt Christ, but they exalt themselves. And I see churches exalting themselves. That's not David's perspective. David looked ahead. David didn't have the full revelation we have. And he says, this one that is coming, this one that God promised would be in my lineage, he's far greater than I am. Far greater. The Lord God said to David's Lord, the Christ, sit at my right hand. The place of highest honor. The place of greatest authority. The kingdom of God that was promised, that rules over the nations of men. The kingdom of God that is eternal, to which all the prophets pointed. Jesus rules and reigns that kingdom at the right hand of the Father. Not here on the earth, but in heaven. Seated at his right hand. And we know Christ Jesus, after he was crucified for our sins, after he was buried and raised again on the third day, he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God. That's not just some statement to give you some idea of Jesus put place in the church, that's reality. That's where Christ is. And so David sees him a greater, as one with greater power and greater majesty, greater authority than himself. And if that's David's perspective, then how could the Christ and his kingdom be only for Israel the nation? Do you, you see where Jesus is going with this? He's basically told them in this chapter You've, you've not lived up to the covenant God made with you, Israel the nation. And that was to be expected because God promised someone greater, the real Israel, the, the faithful son, the faithful king, and he will establish God's kingdom where you have failed. The Lord said to my Lord, so David's considering something beyond the scope of ethnic Israel. Something beyond its imperfect record with God and its long line of imperfect kings. The promise of an everlasting kingdom was made to David, but he recognized it as something greater than just a, a piece of real estate or the expansion of that real estate. It would extend to all the nations and people would come into it from every tribe, every tongue, every language and they would do so by faith in this one that God promised. And that's Jesus' point. He's saying that His is the true heavenly royalty. His is the true kingdom. And David's royal majesty only imperfectly reflected it. Jesus' royalty 
is eternal. Jesus' royalty, His reign is victorious. And it's ensured by His resurrection, which the apostles frequently referenced. But the scribes are a representative of all the Jewish religious leadership who resisted our Lord. The kingdom they wanted was certainly very concerned with external morality. A lot of people are moralists today, even those who aren't Christians. You can look around anywhere in our culture today and find one group pointing to another group and saying, well, well you're not doing quite as good from our standard, at least, as we think you ought to. But God's not concerned with us just being moral. That's good. It's important. Jesus addressed that when he talked about the great commandments and how we should do that out of a genuine love from the heart, obey God and serve our fellow man. But the kingdom the scribes wanted was very concerned with external morality, very concerned with pious living. They were often vocal about their disdain for sinners. And mind you, God does want us, as I mentioned to you last week, He wants us to keep His commands. They're given with a purpose, but we'll do that imperfectly. The point is you must do it from the heart. And that's what we as Christians desire. As Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. A wretched man that I am who will deliver me from the body of this death, he says. We do want to do what is right. We should seek to do what is right. But the way into the kingdom is not the level of your morality as compared to other people. What excludes you from the kingdom of heaven is your lack of perfect morality, your lack of perfect love compared to Christ. And so the scribes had to exalt themselves, though, in their scheme of things. They were the keepers of the law. They were the ones who had the insight into the kingdom of heaven, right? So they worked hard at the externals. And as they, the encounter of verses 28 through 34 proves, they lacked a true love for God and man and therefore didn't really love righteousness, but they attempted to elevate themselves above those whom they considered to be sinners. Those who are accursed by God. You're not like us. We do this and we do that. And Jesus mentions some of those things that they do here in verses 38 through 40. They like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses for a pretense, making long prayers, and they will receive the greater condemnation, said Jesus. All your external righteousness that's not from the heart, 
and is only designed to elevate you above other people so you can compare yourself with them and say, well, see, I'm not that bad. It's like the Pharisee and the tax collector, remember? I thank you, God, I'm not like other men, like this horrible, terrible tax collector, this horrible sinner. But they went around doing that constantly. That, in fact, they added to Scripture all over the place, having the writings of their rabbis, adding this rule and that rule and this, this explanation of that rule and another explanation for another one. And it just beat people down. Because you can't be that perfect. You can't even be, bear the burden of the law that God lays upon mankind much less all the extra stuff that the rabbis, the scribes, and all the rest added to it. So, Jesus points out some of their practice. And this is only a, a small portion, mind you. If you look back in Matthew chapter, into chapter 22 and all of chapter 23, what's Jesus doing? A whole chapter dedicated to pointing out their lawlessness and hypocrisy. If you could sum it all up, Jesus says you're lawless hypocrites. You claim to keep the law of God and you fail miserably. And you lead other people down the same miserable path. Now the purpose of the law, as I reminded you last week, it is to beat you down. I've heard someone say, one of the purposes of preaching is to preach the law so it can beat you up and then preach the gospel so you can be comforted. And I guess, in essence, that's what every sermon should be about in some fashion. Because all the law of God, all the word of God, lends itself to that. Right? And Jesus just lays out this rebuke of the scribes and your condemnation is all the greater because you do what you do, not out of love for God, not out of love for your fellow man, but hypocritically, for your own exaltation. Now you may profess to be a Christian this morning, and you come to church, and you sing the hymns, and you participate in the service, you give of your offerings, and we'll talk about offerings in a minute. You do all those Christian things, right? Why do you do them? Are you just trying to externally be seen as a little better than someone else? Well, not quite as bad as those that aren't at church this morning. Heathens, right? Why are you here? Did you come to worship God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Not because you have a righteousness of your own. Not because you truly of your own accord came up with some ability to love God with all your being and love your neighbors yourself. No, you don't have that. God has to give you even the desire for righteousness. No, you should come to worship Christ who is all those things for you perfectly. And we worship and praise Him for that. 
But Jesus in his teaching warned the crowds, look at these scribes, this is what they're doing and you should beware of them. Don't follow after them. Elsewhere Jesus will say, they sit in the seat of Moses and you should listen to what they say from Moses, but don't do as they do. Because they're hypocrites. Because what they do, they are not doing out of a new heart that looks to God in faith for the salvation He will provide in the Christ. The pretense of their hypocritical lifestyle ensured that greater condemnation. And I've always said, it's really church is one of the one of the most, it is the most wonderful place you can be if you're a believer. It's the most dangerous place you can be if you're an unbeliever whose heart is hard toward God. Why? Because you keep hearing the word of God, you keep hearing the gospel, and you keep rejecting it. And that's what the scribes were doing. But in contrast, and here's the good news. In contrast, Jesus is emphasizing himself not only as heavenly royalty, but as the one possessing a heavenly righteousness. Do you see the flow of what Mark is presenting here? These are, these are not detached things in the mind of Mark as he is, by the guidance of the Spirit, writing them down for us. The heavenly royalty that is greater than that of David, Jesus says, I'm that royalty. The righteousness that your religious leaders fail to actually produce and that demand of you and you fail to produce, I'm that righteousness. I possess a heavenly righteousness. I teach truth. I practice that truth. Jesus is the one whose life is truly marked by a wholehearted love of God and mankind. And so we're not here this morning because we somehow measure up to that. No, we're here this morning because we fall miserably short of that. And that's what sin means, the very word. You've missed the mark. You didn't hit the target, you fell short and hit the ground long before the target. You're a bent and crooked arrow. You cannot be shot straight, as it were. Jesus is the Christ. Heavenly royalty Heavenly righteousness, the Jews wouldn't find in their leaders what God had promised in His Christ. And aren't we glad? Don't look to a, a human being, certainly don't look to me. We all fall short. No matter how much we love the Lord, no matter how much we serve the Lord and people may see that service to the Lord like the Apostle Paul we have to say miserable wretch of a man that I am but not Jesus 
Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is greater than the, the most fastidious scribes and Pharisees. Infinitely greater. Sadly, the scribes promised a reward to those that listened to their teaching. A reward that they weren't receiving themselves and neither were those that were following them. Because in their version of the kingdom, you had to follow their lead and you had to do that strictly. But Jesus offers a reward that's heavenly, a union with him that truly enriches not your pocketbook, but your heart. And it does that not just now, but forever. And so I want to submit to you that these final verses of chapter 12 may not be quite what you thought they were. They mean what I believe all of us have probably never on the cursory reading of this passage would come away with and, and thinking we understood it. Because the, the two small copper coins, those smallest coins uh, in the, the coinage that this poor widow would have been able to deposit in the offering box in the temple treasury, these two small copper coins and her giving of those copper coins is not an example of sacrificial giving. I have preached sermons to that effect. And I don't think it was correct. And you won't find that interpretation in the notes of your study Bible if you're looking there. Well, wait a minute, that's not what I read in this study Bible note. In reading commentaries about this passage, you don't, you don't find that in commentaries, old or new. And I'm not telling you this because, oh, I have some great insight. I don't have great insight into this. I'm just saying as we look at this and we look at it in context and we understand that Mark's giving us a narrative about the life and ministry of Christ our Lord as a faithful servant of God, the Christ himself, and we come to this passage, it's absolutely, completely out of context to say, oh, now we're shifting gears and we're going to talk about how you need to tithe and give your offerings, right? Mm, be careful with that. Context is very important. This widow, this poor widow, this poor widow that gives everything she has to live on, for that day, she just gave everything she had. She could have gone to buy food, and she would need someone to help her with her living with the very necessities of life, the very basics. She just gave what money she had that would have bought a little bit of food for her to survive on. This widow is an example of how an interpretation of Scripture, listen, without Jesus Christ, leaves you spiritually bankrupt. If Christ is not the center of Scripture, if you don't see that, and if you're not being taught that, you have nothing. 
And the events of Mark's narrative that surround this, these verses here force us to see the widow as a victim of religion without Christ, which is no true religion at all, is it? Jesus does not commend her sacrificial giving. You don't find that here. I challenge anyone to say Jesus is very specifically, clearly, unequivocally pointing out this woman's sacrificial giving and that's how you should give of your offerings, sacrificially. Not the context. Instead, our Lord sat down, we're told, opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And after his encounter with the very religious leaders of Israel, the leaders of Judaism, and remember, reach back to Matthew 23 and all that long chapter of Jesus' rebuke of the lawless hypocrisy of the leaders and how they were just leading the blind, leading the blind. Think about all that. Now Jesus sits down in the temple opposite the treasury in the court of women, I believe is where that was located. And he watches the people putting in money in the money box. Some who, have, or who are very wealthy and they put in what they have to spare. And then there's this all the way down from them to this poor old widow. No one to care for her. No one to provide for her in any way. And she takes the last bit of money she has and drops it in the offering box. And Jesus was delighted at what he saw. He was so thrilled that someone gave sacrificially. Not just what they had to spare, but sacrificially. No. Jesus was grieved rather than pleased. And he was grieved especially with the widow's offering. Not because she... Or the rich people did something wrong in giving. On the contrary, we should give. It is good to give for the work of ministry. It is good to give for those in need. The Scripture teaches us to do that. Old Testament and New Testament. Our Lord Jesus taught that. But He's not talking about that here. He was quite obviously, grieved with her hopeless and blind trust in a legalistic, moralistic, self-righteous religion like Judaism. They had taken the Scripture that pointed to our Lord Jesus Christ and they had twisted it, perverted it for their own selfish means that they might exalt themselves, that they might be revered as righteous in the eyes of the people, that they might be blessed monetarily. The widow was taught by the leaders, give in order to gain God's favor. Give in order to get and be blessed. 
And so in her impoverished situation, she gave everything she had, says Mark, all she had to live on in hopes of receiving what? Eternal life. What does anybody that engages in a religion want? I, I want something after this life. I want to live. I don't want to die. I don't want death to be the end. So whether it's Judaism, which was very much grounded, if you will, in the Scripture, or whether it's some other religion, whatever you're putting your trust in, if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, you're expending yourself on that and you're getting nothing. Now, that's classic prosperity theology, and we have that going on here even in our county as I speak to you this morning. And I just have to say, and probably should bite my tongue, but I don't have any liking whatsoever for people who preach that garbage. You're telling people, give, 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 give of your earthly possessions to get a blessing from God. Where is the gospel in that? Here's a hint, it's not. It's not in that. And that kind of preaching, just like the teaching of the scribes, devours widows' houses, said Jesus. There's no heavenly reward in believing a lie, no matter how sincerely you believe that lie. This kind of religion ends up hurting the most those who have the least because it robs them in time and eternity. How horrible. I'd rather be dead than to do that to someone. Some scribes and some Pharisees like Paul and other leaders were later converted. They came to trust in Christ. So God's grace can reach down and save those who believe these things themselves and teach them wrongly to others. But it's because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God can rescue those trapped in a false religion even its teachers. And we should pray for that and try not to get too much on our high horse like I did this morning. By the grace of God, sinners can be converted to Christ and have the heavenly reward that only He can bring, and that is true eternal life. Jesus is the truly righteous King of heaven and there's a heavenly reward for everyone who trusts Him. Is He your trust this morning? Is He the one in whom you've placed all your trust? I know when you come to this church, you come to hear the Word of God and, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. It's proclaimed from the pulpit. It's proclaimed in the sacraments. It's proclaimed in our gathering as we read the Word of God and pray the Word of God, and how blessed we are to have this fellowship. 
but that Jesus is the truly righteous King and that there is a heavenly reward for us in following Him, not because of what we have done, but because of who He is. God's promised King of heaven, who is truly righteous, who gave His righteous life for you and sacrifice on the cross to pay for, to atone for your sin, and who rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is all of that, and that's why we worship Him this morning. And that was what generated the worship, if you'll remember, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached that wonderful sermon on the day of Pentecost. And I just want to read some of that sermon for you, and you listen and you'll hear what Peter is saying about Christ, which this passage in Mark has emphasized today. After calming the people down and ensuring the people around that those who had been speaking in tongues had not been drinking early in the day, <laughs> Peter says this, gets to the heart of the sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Then Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. The psalm wasn't talking about him. Being therefore a prophet, David, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Listen, people are not going to be saved from their sins when all you're doing is telling them you should do this and you should do that and not do this and not do that. They need to be told what God says about what to do and what not to do and with what heart we ought to do it. But because we fall short, they need to be told about Jesus Christ. And when they hear of Jesus Christ as God is calling sinners to himself through this gospel, bringing them to Christ, they repent. And you see what happened there. They believe 4,000 people saved. 3,000 rather. Getting a little ambitious there. I'm not saying that every time we preach about Jesus, thousands of people are going to be saved. I'm saying we need to preach Jesus. And that's what we're doing when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Right? We're proclaiming His death again until He comes, said Paul. So this Jesus is the Christ... His is a heavenly royalty, His is a heavenly righteousness, and His reward is heavenly, and He gives it to you if you will repent of your sin and believe in Christ. We can be cut to the heart, and should be, and say, what must we do? And the answer is repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is Jesus the object of your faith today? And are you looking to Him, the Jesus of the Bible, to bring you into heaven's kingdom? Don't be like the scribes. Don't just be a religious hypocrite. Don't be like the poor widow, though believing what she was taught sincerely did not look to Christ. Was not believing what the Scripture said and, of course, she wasn't taught that. But believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And having been saved, you can rejoice and rest in Him and give great thanks to God as we do today for this wonderful salvation that we have in the Christ, Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how, how good you are How merciful, gracious, how patient, how abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, as the psalmist says repeatedly. This is your promise that though we are sinners, you've provided a Savior. That though we are in the kingdom of darkness, as we are born into this world as lost sinners, we can be in the kingdom of your beloved Son by faith in His name, because He is truly righteous. 
And we can be in that kingdom and enjoy the greatness of that gift, eternal life, in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it is in Christ our Lord that we praise you, our Father, and give you great thanks. And pray that you will bless the continuation of our service this morning as we worship in Jesus' name. Amen.